Knowing the headlines isn't always enough. Sometimes you need to talk about it. For stimulating conversation on the day's hot topics, this is your station. This is your show. The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. A good Friday morning to you. If you uh, were tuned in about 20 minutes ago, you heard me chatting with Bruce Bowie. You know that in just a second, we'll be checking in with the Honorable David Egan, Alberta's Minister of Education. A few things we want to tee up, most notably Alberta signing a deal with a group of First Nations. Uh, They say that the deal is going to make a big impact on young learners. Young learners, of course, we know that uh, as we look across some of the communities in the province, First Nations students... When it comes to attendance and high school graduation rates, they've been well below the provincial average. A new deal should change that. We'll talk to the Minister of Education about that in just a second. In the 10 o'clock hour, we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper into what this panel is all about, established by the official opposition, Wild Rose Party. They're talking about what is fair when it comes to equalization payments. That conversation's been flaring up again, of course, as it, I mean, Alberta, we know exactly where we are economically right now. We don't know when it's all going to wrap up. We don't know when we're going to pull out of this. So what should this mean when it comes to equalization and how realistic is a big dramatic change before a looming date anyway? We'll talk to Frank Atkins in the 10 o'clock hour. 11 o'clock, our roundtable today, Jana Pruden and Stephanie Coombs. Should be a fascinating one with the former uh, Crime Bureau chief and the former managing editor of the Edmonton Journal. We'll get into some story time. We'll get their takes on some items in the news and take some questions and comments from you as well on the text line. Let's not keep David Egan waiting, the province's Minister of Education, joining us over uh, the phone this morning. Uh, as I understand, probably a busy day for you, Minister. Thank you for your time off the top of the show. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Everybody, uh, well, I mean, most people anyway, uh, that took a look at this deal that Alberta signed with this group of First Nations, the Kitaski Now Tribal Council, celebrating it. You've obviously got to be excited about it. Uh, what is most notable about this deal through your eyes? Well, this is a, an historic and a very hopeful agreement uh, between uh, five First Nations. Uh, the Kitaski Now Tribal Council has already come together to uh, pool their resources um, both on both sides of the reserve land and in uh, provincial schools to work to uh, improve student outcomes in uh, that area. We have, like you say, a low uh, attendance rate and high school completion rate in uh, many uh, areas in the province, uh, especially with First Nations. And so we're looking for something new, uh, a way to work as equal partners uh, between uh, bands and uh, tribal councils and uh, the province of Alberta. So we talk about uh, curriculum that will be more culturally relevant. Uh, Do you have a direction on this yet, or does this still need to be hashed out, the exact details of what that means? Well, again, uh, you know, trying to make sure we are in full partnership, equal partners with the tribal council to look for direction for culturally appropriate uh, uh, curriculum. Um, but also to just really up the game in regards to literacy and uh, mathematics and um, looking for ways to improve student attendance as well. Um, There's just so many young people in the North that uh, deserve uh, a better chance to uh, make sure they complete school, 
And um, so the elders and families up there, um, they just want to take the bull by the horns. And uh, we're willing to do that. They work together with them. Um, for so many years, there was a bit of a standoffish uh, uh, attitude because of uh, the federal government's involvement in uh, in uh, education. But we've decided just to push ahead here. Um, we know that the federal government will see the good works we're doing and will come along with us here for the betterment of all children. I've seen it reported that this deal is a first of its kind here in the province. As far as you're aware, has any provincial government uh, initiated something like this across Canada? Could this be a first across the country? Well, we've been, yes, we've been watching uh, in uh, Saskatchewan and Ontario, for example, who have tried to, uh, something similar. But I think the scope by which we are uh, entering in this agreement and uh, the uh, uh, way that we are entering as equal partners um, on uh, both sides of uh, federal reserve land, I think that is unique. So, you know, we're saying that it doesn't matter where you live in uh, the province of Alberta, Every child is, uh, deserves the best education we can possibly serve. And so our provincial government's going to do that. I, I mean, I've been charged to make sure we improve literacy and uh, mathematics and uh, high school completion rates across the province. So what better place to start than where we obviously see uh, lots of room for improvement. Minister, as previously mentioned, uh, attendance and high school graduation rates for Alberta's First Nation students have tended to fall below the provincial average. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, a loaded question in a sense because it requires to a certain degree some generalization. But why do you believe this problem has been so ingrained in First Nations communities? Why has it been so pervasive? Well, I believe that, um, of course, isolation has uh, a lot to do with it. And then, of course, the gap that uh, has been created for so many years between federal education policy and uh, uh, the province as well. Um, there is definitely less money per student on reserve. So, uh, of course, many uh, um, families would choose to have their kids go off reserve. And so then um, then you have a split of the family. So there's just a whole lot of um, uh, baggage that um, is getting in the way right now of uh, having equal and uh, just uh, education uh, for First Nations students. And quite frankly, um, you know, we're setting the bar high. Uh, you'll see in this next uh, provincial budget that I intend to uh, start a plan here to ensure that First Nations, Métis and Inuit student graduation rates, uh, completion rates and success are uh, just at the same level as uh, any students here in uh, Alberta. Was this partnership prompted at all by the, the, the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and some of the initiatives that have, that have come out of that? Oh, for sure. Uh, we know, uh, I mean, all of us know that um, there's been a lot of inequity and uh, a lot of um, pain and suffering in the past. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee brought that all to the front of uh, mind for for Albertans and Canadians, and it's um, obviously a uh, big signal for us to start to turn a corner here. So it won't be an easy path, but um, Kitaska now um, has come out in force, and uh, it was a very enthusiastic crowd yesterday. We had uh, more than, uh, I'd say, 40 or 50 people from the area come down to Edmonton to uh, interact and celebrate the signing of this agreement, and uh, I have to say I'm really, really excited and hopeful.
The Honourable David Egan, Alberta's Minister of Education, our guest, we're talking about an agreement that will affect approximately 1,000 students, kindergarten through grade 12, from the Loon River, Lubicon Lake, Peerless Trout, Whitefish Lake, and Woodland Cree First Nations in northern Alberta. Minister, obviously, some of the curriculum that's been suggested could include uh, traditional skills like hunting and fishing, but there's also initiatives, uh, as I understand it, to bolster literacy, math, and science skills, including protecting the environment. Can you see this initiative ultimately extending to all of Alberta's schools, whether it's First Nations communities or not? Well, for sure. This is a chance for us to be aggressive, have best practices, to uh, learn about how we can have uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit uh, culture in uh, all curriculum across the province. Um, We have a very um, aggressive uh, investment of uh, $70 million over three years to develop curriculum and uh, to address our First Nations heritage here in the province, and that will be delivered out to everybody, um, all students in uh, all grades here in the province of Alberta. So so it's a great place to, uh, I think, focus and uh, learn from elders in uh, Kitaskino, and uh, also I think all eyes will be on us for other areas in Alberta that are similar and in close proximity to Federal Reserve land to hopefully replicate uh, a good example we'll set in Kitaskano. We're now uh, about six weeks away from the deadline that you've set for the province's 61 school boards to to update their policies uh, to specifically respect changes to the Education Act when it comes to policies, inclusion policies, we'll call them, for LGBT students. Uh, The Fort Vermilion School Board is making some noise, certainly Chairman Clark McCaskill uh, saying that they refuse to update their policies that are intended to make schools welcoming and safe, suggesting that there's been outcry from parents and they believe that their current policies are just fine. Thank you very much. You've gone on record saying you won't dissolve a school board that refuses to comply. So what do you do with the sore thumbs like this? Well, I think that um, the story rolled out in, uh, you know, bits and pieces, uh, Fort Vermillion um, and uh, uh, my own uh, self and my department. Uh, we're making plans to meet up here in the next uh, couple weeks to talk about this. Um, I think that they want to make sure that they are doing what's best for all kids up in uh, Fort Vermillion, and uh, I fully expect that they uh, are acting uh, in the best in, with the best intentions. Um, it's been going quite well across the province in general. Uh, we've been interacting and helping out uh, school boards uh, for, for, for to develop their policy that uh, ensure that uh, kids are safe and uh, treated in a uh, equal and uh, sensitive sort of way. We want to make sure that policy, of course, is just words on paper, but uh, policy can be something that teachers and principals and uh, families can work with to uh, make sure that uh, we are sensitive uh, to kids' needs. And so it's um, important for us to make policy that way. And, uh, you know, uh, the spirit of collaboration is the key here, right? It's all coming out from trying to help kids out. And um, I think that the way we develop the policy and uh, interact between the boards should reflect that uh, sort of caring and uh, collaborative uh, approach. So, so yeah, I'll talk to Fort Vermillion, and uh, we'll uh, away we go. I'm uh, I'm feeling uh, I'm good about uh, getting something done that we can all work with.
I know that you're. I mean, obviously, you've you you've taken the onus. The onus has been on you, whether whether it was placed on you or whether you took it upon yourself to 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 implement a policy that you believe protects all students. And I think many yeah. people might suggest that unless all boards comply, it's it's kind of meaningless. I mean, if if, if boards can essentially opt out or strong arm the Ministry of Education and say thanks but no thanks, then then it really doesn't mean very much, including some of the the, the Catholic boards. And I know that you've met with bishops as well. Well, how important is it to you ultimately that there is an all-inclusive policy that all school boards recognize? Uh, well, I mean, it's essential um, for policy from school boards to reflect the provincial legislation that's been passed here in the last uh, 18 months or so. So that's kind of what I've been charged with here. Um, we have uh, legislation uh, that was passed with the last government here and then in the last session uh, a fall session in the legislature that uh, I'm responsible to make sure it's uh, filtering down to uh, every student to make sure that they're safe and protected. And so, yeah, I mean, school boards have been doing a great job uh, looking after our, our kids and uh, developing uh, policy around sexuality and uh, gender and uh, so forth in, in a very productive way. We just want to make sure everybody's up to speed and that they have policy that fits in with uh, provincial legislation. So, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm optimistic. I, uh, I have to be. I knew that this would be a bumpy road, but um, I didn't just want to hand down um, law from Edmonton here. I want people to work through it, um, develop policy, and uh, then they, they own it. It's, a, it's an educative process as well as a, uh, a procedural process. I can't remember the last time I've seen so many people, and and, th- and this is sort of a, a, a straw poll, if you will. I'm talking about what I've seen on Twitter and Facebook. There, there's no scientific numbers behind this, but, but I can't remember the last time I've seen so many people talk about whether or not we should pull public funding or taxpayers' funding from Catholic schools. What are your thoughts on that, generally speaking? Is that a conversation that's being had down at the Alberta legislature at all in any context whatsoever? Uh, well, of course we have to address these concerns, and quite frankly, I've found it uh, a bit disturbing, right, um, how sometimes you scratch the surface and lots of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sentiment and feeling comes out around uh, religious education. We know that uh, Catholic uh, education here in the provinces contributes to public education in a very significant way. Uh, their results are great. Um, we have uh, excellent school boards across the province that uh, really really do the job for us here. Um, quite frankly, I need every school and board uh, working uh, to full capacity here to meet uh, the very fast-growing enrollment that I have in the province here. Um, it keeps on growing, and uh, Catholic education uh, has a very important contribution to that. So so I guess that's um, less the issue, more is the fact that we just have to make sure we keep uh, policy and so forth in line with um, with human rights. And, um, you know, it's a sensitive, uh, there's always some tension there. Um, of course, we have uh, religious rights too, but uh, um, human rights are, uh, and equality are paramount in uh, everything that I do and what uh, public policy sh- should do as well. The Honorable David Egan, Alberta's Minister of Education, appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, thanks a lot. You bet. We'll talk to you again soon. If you have a comment, Or if you'd like to join those who have already commented on what we've just heard, go ahead and shoot us a text message to 630-630. Matthew Panasiak running the board today. Matt, I think we probably have time to open up the phones as well, don't we? 780-496-0063. We're back in a couple minutes. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. 
Our thanks to David Egan for joining us, Alberta's education minister. It's, it's, it's always one of the bigger portfolios. I mean, education and health are two of the big ones. Obviously, infrastructure, in some contexts, human services. You can take a look at, uh, obviously, finance. But education has become even more sort of spotlight-grabbing, if you will, since some of the initiatives that have been, to say the very least, a little more controversial, the implementation of new policies, strong words and expectations, and then taking it to the next level, pushback, blowback, if you want to call it, from Catholic school boards, from the Fort Vermilion Public School Board, and they're not the only ones. Buffalo Trail Public School Board also indicating concerns with new policies. My question to the minister is, you've got 61 boards across the province. If they don't all comply with your new policy, if some of them refuse and you say, okay, well, we're going to respect your parents, we're going to respect your trustees, and we're going to respect your kids as well, and we'll find a way to, to kind of get you to comply with, with asterisks, well, doesn't that kind of like take away from it? If there's boards that are like 60% in and, and some boards are willing to adopt like 20% of the language and, and, and then some of them say not at all, but the education minister says, hey, dissolving boards is extreme and I'm not going to do that. Well, then, I mean, you know, what sort of legs does the policy stand on? And the answer is not very strong ones. But at the same time, and equally as important, there are obviously parents and trustees, and for that matter, students that are maybe uncomfortable with some of these new policy proclamations. And so the education minister, you you get the sense he doesn't want to just roll in and and sort of scorch the earth and say, here's the deal, you've got to comply. So, So how does he manage all of this? March 31st is the deadline. There's a lot that'll happen between now and then, to say the very least, and we'll keep you in the loop. Nick styled in from Pinocchio this morning. Hi, Nick. Hello. What prompted your call? Well, I was uh, the sports director at the Ermanskin Residential School uh, for three years. I started there in 1957. Uh, when I left, I went back to school, took uh, an education, and I went back as a phys ed teacher for five years. Uh, I've heard a lot about the Truth and Reconciliation, and I was listening to the comments about this underfunding for uh, Native schools. Um, my uh, firm belief is that Ermanskin School was an excellent school, and all these uh, findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are based on falsehood. Um, when I was there, when I went there in 57, there were school buses running to all four reserves. There's uh, the uh, Hobima was divided into four reserves. There was also a school bus going to Wetaskiwin. There was several school buses going to Pinoka. Uh, my point is that uh, the Native parents had a choice. They could send their uh, children to school on a school bus and keep them at home. They could send them to Wetaskiwin or they could send them to Pinoka both public schools, or they could put them in the residential uh, school, and they were there then as boarders. Uh, if the schools were what they claimed they were, why would 
situation when they had other options. Nick, just so I'm clear, do you, you said that the, the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are based on falsehood. Are you, are you implying that, that there's been false testimony, that thousands of people lied? Yes. Uh, I have uh, at least three dozen abuse charges against me from when I was there. Um, I say none of them are true. Some of them are just uh, outrageous. Um, I, I went to a lawyer. I was permitted under the Truth and Reconciliation. The agreement was that I could go to a lawyer and get advice. I did. Uh, the advice was, it's a kangaroo court. Don't get involved. I received some more uh, abuse charges against me. I went back to him once more, and he said, I know you don't like my advice, but my advice is the same. Don't get involved. I have gone to our MLA, uh, I'm sorry, our MP. Um, We discussed this, and during the conversation, uh, I used the word day student. He stopped me. He said, what's this day student? So I explained to him just what I told you, that they had options. A day student would be someone who lived at home, rode the school bus, and... uh, Went back home, stayed at home. Uh, Nick, let, let me interrupt for a second. Are you saying? Are you currently facing charges? Because, like, you can't. You, you say you, your your advice, your lawyer, is that it's a kangaroo court. You you don't you can't opt out of facing charges. Are you currently facing charges? Uh, y- yes, you can opt out of facing charges. Um, if I wanted to uh, see, this is an adjudication uh, an adjudication system. Uh, I appear before an adjudicator, not before a court. Okay, Nick, I'll tell you what. I'm going to put you on hold for a quick second. We're going to sort out some of these details because I can't send us late into the news headlines. Here they are. Call 780-496-0063 or text 630-630 and join the conversation. The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. 9.35 on this Friday morning. That was an interesting call from Nick, uh, who says he was teaching at the Ermanskin Residential School back in the 1950s. Uh, We sought a few more details in in a conversation over the phone through that commercial break. And as as best I can tell, Nick is referring to the independent assessment process known as the IAP. You may have heard the name Dan Shapiro, who's the chief adjudicator there. Uh, Now, this is... Uh, the process through which up to 40,000 survivors of residential schools uh, provided testimony. And uh, the uh, commissioners of this IAP, this independent assessment process, have vehemently uh, defended the promise of confidentiality that were made to claimants, uh, saying that they can't go public with the testimony that they received because confidentiality was promised as part of a preservation of dignity. As a matter of fact, the dignity, they say, will be preserved through the destruction of all IAP records after the conclusion of the compensation process. So as best I can tell, it sounds like allegations were made through testimony during that independent assessment process as part of truth and reconciliation, and I understand 
your head may be swirling. Mine is a little bit as well. Nick saying that his his government provided lawyer, his lawyer, which was funded by the federal government, advising him not to take part, in other words, not to take issue or not to combat testimony provided in this process. And when he said he was opting out, so in other words, he's not being charged. You obviously can't opt out of criminal abuse charges. And it sounds like Nick was not criminally charged. But it's something that perhaps should be more on our radar. I mean, how much do we actually know? I mean, we try to educate ourselves as much as possible on issues like truth and reconciliation. Have you read the actual report? Have you read the almost 100 recommendations? I know we all have a lot to learn. That's kind of the mandate of this entire show. Our thanks to Nick for calling in. I I would certainly take issue with his assertion that the truth and reconciliation report is based on falsehood and, and that thousands of survivors were lying. I I don't think that that's probably the case. I mean, some people have, have, have come forward, those that worked in residential schools and said, hey, you know, not all residential schools were horrible. Not every person that worked at a residential school, you know, was evil incarnate. And that may very well be true. But generally speaking, I think that it's a commonly held belief or commonly accepted belief that the residential school legacy is a stain on Canada's history. But I'm open to argument. 780-496-0063, you can text us to 630-630. Here's another one from Brian who says, I worked on the Sampson Reserve for three years. During that time, a former chief told me that a residential school saved his life. Said there were 11 kids in his family, not a lot of food. He was able to receive an education, allowing to, him to open and run several businesses. They were hard on him, but no harder than what I faced at that time in Edmonton. They were hard on him, but not abusive. Brian says those stories never came out in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a thousand sides to some stories. Did you catch Danielle Boudreaux's appearance on this show last week? One, one of the more powerful hours that I think we've probably ever had. And, and if you missed it... You can find that audio file at 630ched.com or on iTunes. Danielle Boudreaux is the activist, the the organizer, the longtime organizer of, of the Memorial March of Edmonton. She's the one who lost her sister. She's lost many close friends, those working in the sex trade or living high-risk lifestyles. She's the one that's speaking out against the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. She says that she doesn't have the confidence that it's actually going to achieve anything significant. The reason why I bring Danielle up is because she testified to us. She shared her personal testimony of how she and her own struggles, her own drug addiction, her own hurdles through life are a result of residential schools, not that she attended them, but that elders in her community, her family members, returned to the reserve out of these schools completely turned around. There was a total loss of culture. There was a total loss of identity. It was, it was a whitewash in a sense. And so these communities are still feeling the, the results of that. And I think that it's you know, with, with respect to Nick, our caller, it's ignorant. I mean, it's, 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 it's abrasive. What's the word you use to, to imply that thousands of people are lying about their personal experience? I would take issue with that.
on the text line to 630-630. A listener here says, my mother, who's First Nations, never had a choice to go to a public school. She went to a residential school. She was never abused physically like her brother, but she was certainly mentally abused to despise her own kind. Another listener here, and this is Stephen, says, why would throwing more money into schools on reserves make kids attend class? The welfare state is the problem. They're kept in isolation with no economic opportunity. That's obviously a huge problem, says Stephen. He says, in a steady flow of money, just to keep the status quo, same old, same old. But here's the thing. This announcement yesterday and, and what we talked to the education minister about has nothing to do with throwing money at reserves. These are proactive steps to, to integrate cultural elements to curriculum. I mean, sure, there, there may be some costs. I mean, maybe they've got to buy some fishing equipment or some hunting equipment or whatever the case may be. But we're not talking about throwing tens of millions of dollars to certain schools in hopes that it will somehow restore a cultural awareness. This deal with the Kitaskinao Tribal Council aims to make curriculum more culturally relevant. They're going to talk about environmental protection and, and traditional skills and cultural awareness. I think that's a positive, isn't it? I mean, how could it not be? Wouldn't you want to celebrate Canada's rich cultural history, which began with and will always include our First Nations? Let me know what you think. Cam will be first in line on the phones right after this break. This is the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. We're breaking down this deal signed uh, between the province and the Kitaskinaw Tribal Council. First Nations communities in northern Alberta, the agreement will affect about 1,000 students from K to 12 and will affect curriculum, integrating some traditional skills like hunting and fishing. Uh, some of the science curriculum will include protecting the environment. I mean, geez, shouldn't that probably be integrated in every school if it's not already? After all, we know it's 2016, right? Cam's been holding the line, 780-496-0063. Cam, what are your thoughts on what we're talking about today? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. First of all, I'd like to applaud this initiative because it's creative, it's unique to that area, and it's not a blanket policy. So one of the things I, I want to say before I go any further, I very much respect our Indigenous people, and I feel sorry for them in certain regards, but it's not a blanket. So in to discuss residential schools and to make accus accusatory or non-accusatory remarks to residential schools, not all residential schools were bad and not all people in them were bad. But there was a lot of abuse and there was a lot of offensive things that took place. So when the government or we as a society decide to blanket that and cure it, it's not going to happen because, first of all, that's racist in itself. You cannot blanket any social issue and say you solved it just by throwing a bunch of money at it or doing whatever. So engagement in the community, engagement with our Indigenous partners, proper engagement so that you enhance school and education and opportunities makes sense to me. Throwing money at somebody sitting at home because they're in a residential school and having this massive payout does not make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I, I feel bad for them, but it's time to put the, put the monies in place to assist them in their living needs and that sort of thing, but to throw money so that it can be thrown around and not looked after is irresponsible, and it's a blanket solution to a, a really, really sad social issue. Canada, it, it's a shameful thing for Canada that we've treated Indigenous people like this. Hmm. 
Yeah, Cam, I appreciate your, your contribution to the conversation. Thanks for listening to the show. All right, there you have it. 7804960063 on the text line here. A lot of you commenting on sort of different elements of our different aspects of our conversation with the education minister. Of course, we talked about uh, the new uh, inclusive policies, the LGBT policy as well. And many of you are commenting on that. We'll get to that in just a second. Adam says so. So instead of reading and writing and arithmetic under this new deal, it, 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 it's hunting and fishing and canoeing. How does this help First Nations entering post secondary or the workforce? Now, Adam, they're, they're certainly not replacing, as you said, reading, writing, and arithmetic with hunting, fishing, and canoeing, but they're integrating what they say are traditional skills into the curriculum to make it more culturally relevant. Like, I mean, I think of some of the classes that I had, some of the, you know, I, what did we call them? The options, I think we called them. When even as, as I think grade five, it started grade six, maybe into junior high, I took like handbells <laughs> we had we had it we had an archery class there's home ec woodworking once you get into high school there's mechanics uh i'm trying to think of others drama you know i mean so yeah i mean i think there's probably room to integrate traditional skills that that celebrate cultural relevance or that that sort of circle around cultural relevance without Getting rid of reading and arithmetic, I think. That, I think this is a positive. I don't. I mean, I, I. I don't know how it's not positive to to celebrate the culture of our First Nations. You you talk to. I mean, it's the common theme when you talk to either Indigenous people or those that have worked in Indigenous communities, and they'll say the number one thing we've got to get back to is an understanding of history, an understanding, and an embracing of culture and an understanding of identity. And how does that start? Where does that start? Many of you have suggested that it begins in the home. It should begin in the home. And generally speaking, you may be right. But we know that on reserves and off reserves with First Nations people and with other people, oftentimes what some of us may believe to be the duty of the parents oftentimes falls on teachers and school administrators. That's certainly not unique to First Nations. And so when we look to impact attitudes of young learners, we look to curriculum measures. And this is just one example of that. Ted says the cultural awareness for First Nations people is a good thing. He says, I'd take it one step further and implement a rural awareness component as well in our entire provincial school system to decrease the ever-growing disconnect between urban and rural issues here in Alberta as well. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Why not? How about this question? If you could introduce or implement something into curriculum, K-12 curriculum, or if you even want to pick an age group, if you want to say junior high or elementary or high school, what would it be? Based on your experience, the experience of your children, or your general observations, what's missing from curriculum in Alberta right now? We'll get to that next. We kicked off this hour talking to Alberta's education minister, 
about a new deal that the province has signed with a group of First Nations in hopes of improving attendance and high school graduation rates among Alberta's First Nations communities. Those numbers have have historically been much lower than the provincial average. The curriculum will be more culturally relevant, they say, if you're just joining us to include traditional skills like hunting and fishing, protecting the environment, The agreement will affect about 1,000 K-12 students, and they're expecting that other First Nations communities will get on board once they see this put into practice. So we're asking the question, if you were in charge, what would you say is missing from curriculum, K-12 or even university? There's a story that we can bring up out of Manitoba, the University of Manitoba is expanding Indigenous education. This is kind of a liberal arts approach to this. Every graduate from the U of M will be required to take a course on Indigenous education. So what would you integrate into curriculum? Jay says the most important thing missing from curriculum in Alberta schools is real-world money management, things like interest rates, how to interpret markets, investing, the difference between GICs, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, smart credit building, use of credit cards, how to apply for a mortgage, how to negotiate a business deal, Jay says these are things that people use for the remainder of their lives, but they have to figure it out all outside of school. Another listener says consumer education is something we used to be taught. You know, income tax, taxes, insurance, bank accounts, paycheck deductions, credit cards, even covered pyramid schemes. Look at this. Jeez, another listener out of Vermillion. Classes teaching you how to manage money and time properly so you don't end up in a, you know, a $1,200 a month rental unit with hundred grand in education debt. Another says, I would integrate money management. This is incredible. This is, this is almost a unanimous response around money management. Hmm. Let's get to Betty's comment here. She says, what's missing? The other point of view, Ryan. When I went to school, Betty says, I was taught both sides of a story so I could debate with my classmates and teachers and make my own decisions. These days, that is not the case. Kids are taught the progressive way and to keep quiet says, my son graduated from high school two years ago, and and he gave up even mentioning his point of view. Says, because the students and teachers were were ganging up on him and making him feel worthless. She says, one example would be one area, you know, global warming. She says, all schools play Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. She says, but none play the great global warming swindle. She says, that's just one example. Well, Betty, first of all, thanks for listening to the show. And second of all, that's what we're committed to. We want to be open to all opinions and all points of views. The idea is to dig into them, to have people essentially make their arguments respectfully, and then each one of us can decide. Thanks for chiming in. Ed's been holding the line. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, sir. What's your take on this? Well, I think maybe uh, it would be a good thing to integrate... uh the uh, you know the traditional gathering of, of of medicinal plants and so on and so forth you know the you know the the traditional medicine uh, the, that should be passed on some of that stuff is is really good you know yeah and also the gathering of uh, you know the the different foods and things that are that are available I've I've seen a lot of that on TV it's it's quite intelligent uh, I I think that they the traditional gathering of foods and, you know, berries and and so on and so forth and roots and edible things that are edible. I mean, it's amazing. I remember uh, in early elementary school, probably grade three or four, we learned how to make bannock, and that's something I'll never forget. It was a really interesting experience, and ever oh, since yeah, then I've kind bannock. of understood a bit more about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's important, too. 
and you know uh, you know the way they uh, the way they smoke fish and the way they do the the whole nine yards of it is is uh, is nothing but positive. Yeah, know? Ed, I've got a break for the news, but thanks you for listening betcha. to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the call, <laughs> listener. Here, maybe this should be last word on this. Says you wouldn't believe how much free time there is at school. Believe me, they have time to teach other things. We can keep this going into the next hour, but we'll kick it off with Frank Atkins, who's uh, well, he's co-chair of this new fair equalization panel that the Wild Rose Party has established. Could things change for Alberta? Could we be paying less to our provincial counterparts? We'll find out in a few minutes.